0: In 1885, physician Edward Livingstone Trudeau opened the first American sanatorium in the Adirondacks of New York. Over a decade prior, Trudeau had become afflicted with tuberculosis, and like many of his European counterparts at the time, the doctor believed that the fresh, cool mountain air would allow his diseased lungs to heal as no cure for this horrific illness had yet been found. Tuberculosis is a highly contagious and fatal respiratory infection that has plagued mankind for our entire existence. As a result, it is a disease of many names, the most common or well-known being consumption. As the victims of tuberculosis appear to be consumed from the inside out. Likely historical references to the disease have been found in numerous ancient cultures, including the Greeks and Romans. And in Egypt, evidence of the illness has appeared in the examined remains of mummies. So vicious and infectious is tuberculosis that by the end of the 18th century, it is believed to be the cause of death for one in seven human lives. Yet it wasn't until the late 19th century that it truly became an epidemic in the United States. As a result, sanatoriums like Trudeau's were established all across the country, not only as an attempt to cure those infected, but also to isolate them from the rest of the community. Unfortunately for many, sanatoriums became, quote, waiting rooms for death. As often by the time symptoms appeared serious enough to seek help, the disease could very well be in its final stages. And while the need for these facilities has become nearly non-existent, since the discovery of antibiotics, the legacy of some of these tragedies purportedly remains in those of abandoned today. Places like Waverly Hills Sanatorium in Louisville, Kentucky, the now decaying skeleton of a one-time modern medical facility that has since become known as one of the most haunted buildings on Earth. My name is Brandon Sheck-Snyder, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. On July 26, 1910, Waverly Hills Sanatorium, open to much fanfare. Located about 10 miles from the center of Louisville, Kentucky, the hospital sat upon a hill about 300 feet above the Ohio River. This location, with its high altitude and country atmosphere, was considered perfect for those suffering from tuberculosis. At the time, the region consisted largely of farmlands, but the swampy wetlands along the nearby river provided a fertile environment for the deadly bacteria to breed and thrive. So by 1910, Louisville was a hot spot for tuberculosis, with over 13,000 people dead, the second highest number of casualties in the country. Although some newspapers at the time estimated that as many as 20,000 may have succumbed to the disease. Tuberculosis became particularly common in the newly developing urban areas of the United States during the late 19th and early 20th centuries as more and more people flocked to growing industrialized towns. At the time, Most homes had a size of about 7 to 10 people, and it wasn't uncommon for several generations to be living together in a single dwelling. This, compounded by the growing city density and lack of access to proper sanitation, nutrition, and information, provided the perfect opportunity for a highly contagious disease like tuberculosis to take hold. Caused by a bacteria named Mycobacterium tuberculosis, the illness is most often spread by water droplets, as those infected coughed, sneezed, or spoke. A single sneeze itself has the potential to spread more than 100 bacteria through over 30 million droplets of liquid. Then, after these droplets evaporate, the bacteria can float in the air. An infected individual will likely spread the disease to one in three people who they come in contact with, and without modern medical treatment, those individuals had less than a 50% chance of survival. At the time of Waverly Hills opening, diagnosis of tuberculosis was based purely on the presence of its symptoms. Initially, this included general aches and pains. But eventually, a dry, persistent cough set in. Low-grade fevers were also common, as well as the loss of appetite, which inevitably resulted in the unhealthy weight loss that led to the name consumption. But over time, the coughs grew more and more severe as the victim's lungs became increasingly diseased and its tissue gradually dissolved. Lumps called tubercles formed in infected tissues, as well as holes and lesions, resulting in one of the most distinctive symptoms of tuberculosis, violent coughing accompanied by blood. Coughing fits so severe, they were deemed, quote, graveyard coughs by doctors of the time. While these symptoms were the most easily identifiable Tuberculosis could also act in a way similar to cancer, spreading from the lungs into other organs, including the skin, eyes, and kidneys. Unfortunately for many, survival of tuberculosis was more complicated than just getting better. The disease can lie dormant in a person for long periods of time, or even years before symptoms began again. And roughly 50 to 60 percent of survivors would have the illness return. It took two years to raise the $75,000 necessary to build an open Waverly Hills sanatorium. Designed by local architect James J. Gaffney the original iteration of the hospital was a two-story wooden building designed to hold as many as 40 patients. In addition to the main building there were two open-air pavilions, one for the use by patients deemed curable and the other for those with advanced cases of the disease. Upon its completion, the city of Louisville decided to relocate all tuberculosis patients currently being treated in city hospitals to either Waverly Hills or the State Tuberculosis Sanatorium, which would later be named Hazelwood. It is unclear exactly how many new patients arrived at the new facility on August 22, 1911, but the Waverly Hills Sanatorium was now significantly over capacity, so temporary quarters of little more than canvas tents were erected for the new arrivals. This hospital addition took over a year to complete and had room for an additional 50 beds. Yet the tuberculosis epidemic had no end in sight, and over the next decade, patients continued to arrive for treatment overcrowding the sanatorium designed for 40, but now filled with 200. President of the Jefferson County Board of Tuberculosis, A.H. Bowman, spoke of the conditions. There's not room to isolate patients. And in fact, the building is so crowded that we have no place for the patients to die. Patients are crowded together in an insanitary and human manner because of the lack of the room. With this lack of space and not enough beds, many patients were forced to sleep on the open porches year round. And to make matters worse, the sanatorium was understaffed with overworked doctors and nurses, several of whom were likely infected themselves. New construction was desperately needed. So in order to gather the tax funds necessary to finance the construction, the mayor of Louisville made it clear to the public that, quote, one in 12 of us here today is doomed to die. His approach worked, and the approval for funds came in 1923. Then, Construction on a new five-story building began in March of 1924. The building not only boasted enough room for more than 400 beds, but it also had enough space to house over 200 employees. Designed by Arthur Loomis, the new Waverly Hills facility was a massive brick and stone structure the Tudor Gothic Revival-style architecture, featuring a three-bay Gothic arched entryway and square tower seated above the entrance. On the inside, patients' wards were composed of long hallways with rooms on either side, each of which housed two individuals and opened up onto a sleeping porch to take advantage of the afternoon sun. Additionally, along with each bed was a radio, telephone, bell signal, and electric light. The new building opened on October 17, 1926, and was considered to be one of the best hospitals for tuberculosis in the country. As such potential patients from all over the country attempted to gain admission to Waverly Hills. Yet as a county hospital, only residents were allowed at the sanatorium. For the residents of Waverly Hills, the primary course of treatment was bed rest and patients experiencing fevers were often confined to their bed for months after their temperature dropped to normal. Other patients with less severe symptoms were expected to spend several hours a day on the screened-in porches, which ran the length of the building. Nutrition was also a treatment necessary for all at Waverly Hills, especially given that the loss of appetite was a symptom of tuberculosis. Every patient was expected to eat well at every meal and partake in several between-meal snacks. Yet for every non-invasive treatment, there was also a more intense surgical option. Some patients underwent surgeries to have infected sections of their lungs removed. Others underwent one of the most serious procedures possible, a pneumonectomy, which removed a patient's entire lung. The one treatment that was considered a last resort and the most invasive surgical procedure done at the hospital was a thoracoplasty. During this surgery, a patient's chest was opened and as many as nine ribs were removed for the purposes of creating an air cushion in the lungs. Then, without the ribs for stability, the chest wall would collapse and prevent the diseased lungs from expanding, allowing them to rest. Unsurprisingly, survival of the treatment was low, at only 5%. Of course, those lucky enough to survive were left permanently disfigured and in pain. By the late 1930s, tuberculosis deaths were starting to slow everywhere throughout the United States but Kentucky, and in the eyes of many, Waverly Hills had become ineffective in treating the epidemic. So in an effort to save money, the city of Louisville merged all of its hospitals under a single governing body, and Waverly Hills as an independent institution ceased to exist. Fortunately, the battle with tuberculosis would not last much longer. In 1943, the introduction of the antibiotic streptomycin dramatically reduced the number of tuberculosis deaths. This, compounded by years of public outreach and education regarding nutrition and sanitation, made the need for such a large facility like Waverly Hills more and more unnecessary. So in 1961, the doors to Waverly Hills Sanatorium were permanently closed. The following year, the building was sold and reopened as Waverly Hills Geriatric Center, but in 1970, the name was changed to Woodhaven Geriatric Center with the hopes of distancing itself from the stigma of the old sanatorium and tuberculosis. But by 1982, the center closed and the building sat abandoned for two decades. Several attempts were made to revitalize the site, but in most cases, the funding fell through as the building rapidly decayed and vandals stole the copper plumbing, broke windows, and trashed the one-time hospital. It wasn't until 2001, when Charles and Tina Mattingly purchased the property that the Waverly Hills Sanatorium was given a second chance. Over the years, legends and stories of what went on within the walls began to grow and having grown up in the area Mattingly was already aware of the reputation that the now decrepit building had acquired in fact during the hospital's operation his father had both worked and been a patient at the site in the book with their dying breath Charles Mattingly told author C.C. Thomas what his father told him about the building on the hill, quote, you just don't wanna go up there, whatever you do, it's a bad place. Yet soon enough, Mattingly realized how popular the abandoned building had become as a possible haunted destination. He told Thomas, quote, we found out in October the first year that groves of people would come out and go through the building they had been doing it for years. It was popular in the local area. This is what you do at Halloween time. Knowing that the building would require significant money to prevent further deterioration and later develop, Mattingly decided to capitalize on this public interest. So he opened the purportedly haunted sanatorium to the public, for everything from haunted history tours to ghost hunters. And as its stories began to spread, the Waverly Hills Sanatorium quickly earned the distinction as one of the most haunted places on Earth. Some of the earliest legends of Waverly Hills tell of resonant ghosts one of a young girl who can be seen running around the third floor solarium. Another of a young boy holding a ball, as well as the apparition of a woman with a bleeding wrist crying for help. Yearly, a spectral hearse also purportedly appears at the back of the building. Who these resident ghosts are is unknown, but they're believed to be the apparitions of patients who never left. Volunteers working on building restoration have also claimed to hear unexplained sounds like disembodied footsteps or the slamming of doors. They've seen lights appear when there is no electricity and they've further affirmed the purported appearance of shadowed figures moving through doorways and corridors. As for those who try to capture the location on film or video, many find their batteries go inexplicably dead or cameras malfunction. Room 502 boasts the most controversial legend of Waverly Hills claiming that in 1928, a nurse was found dead after hanging herself from the light fixture. The woman was only 29, and according to the story, she was depressed, pregnant, and unmarried. Then, in 1932, another nurse who worked in the room committed a similar act, jumping from the roof patio to her death. The reason behind her suicide was unknown, but that has not stopped speculation that the nurse may have actually been pushed. Unfortunately, there are no records to verify either of these deaths, and the first in particular suffers from conflicting accounts. Some say she hung herself from a light fixture, others say a pipe over the door and still others say it was a rafter. Yet the light fixture in the room hangs from a decorative chain too light to hold the weight of a person, and the pipe over the door was part of a sprinkler system that wasn't installed till 50 years after the supposed event. Aside from room 502, Another notorious location in the abandoned facility is what has been called the death tunnel or body chute. Originally used as the steam tunnel for the sanatorium, the 300 foot chute travels from the boiler rooms and power plant at the bottom of the hill to the hospital at the top. In the 1920s, a rail track was added to the tunnel in order to transport the coal. That was then used to power the building and though it was not built with the intention of moving bodies it soon gained that purpose when the tuberculosis death rates rose higher than one in a day as it was believed that the sight of the dead being carried away in full view of the patients would lower morale so the staff of waverly hills took to secretly removing the bodies by lowering them down the tunnel on wheeled table gurneys to hearses parked at the bottom of the hill. As can be expected, the abandoned tunnel has piqued the interest of many who visit the facility today, especially television ghost hunters who claim the paranormal energy of the space is immense. yet there is no accounting for every legend and potentially paranormal experience that people have had when visiting Waverly Hills. And since it is unknown exactly how many have died on the property, these purported spirits may be from entirely unknown patients and visitors whose lives have merely become a number. At the time, deaths were often tabulated according to the county, are the person's home address, rather than the location of their death. And although some hospital reports do give death statistics, their accuracy is uncertain. But what we do know is that 1910 was likely the deadliest year at the Waverly Hills Sanatorium, with a reported 542 deaths. So one can only imagine how many were lost, course of its operation. Today, the Waverly Hills Sanatorium is operated by the Waverly Hills Historical Society, who work to not only save the historic building, but also educate visitors on its history and the impact it and tuberculosis had the local community. Numerous tours, both haunted and historical, are offered with a percentage of the proceeds used to help local charities and the rest for preservation. While the veracity of the stories told on these tours is unknown, Charles Mattingly knew how important they were to the future of the building itself, once stating, quote, I knew the only way I could ever restore this building was to make it famous. My name is Brandon Snyder, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings, Brianne and Brandon Checksnider, with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady shacks. wasn't the whole truth. Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.